0: This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, and come on people, it's free, visit lynda.com slash w-w-i-i. That's l-y-n-d-a dot Lynda.com is for problem solvers, for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master excel, learn negotiation tactics, build a website, or boost your Photoshop skills. That'd be me. Go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. Some of the courses I recommend are the ones for WordPress and video and audio editing, but there's other more, you know, day-to-day ones like Excel 2013 Power Shortcuts, Income Tax Fundamentals, and Going Paperless Start to Finish. I've been taking courses on creating apps, website development, WordPress, things like that, and I really do like it. And for all my family members out there, you will be seeing tons of videos, well, crafted videos, on Disney World. For everyone else who is considering the free 10-day trial, with lynda.com membership, you get to watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching. You can stream thousands of video courses on demand and learn on your own schedule, at your own pace. Courses are structured so you can watch them from start to finish or consume them in bite-sized pieces. You can browse each course transcript to follow along. Or, and this is what I've been doing, search for an answer and skip to that point in the video. You can also take notes and refer to them later. Download tutorials and watch them on the go, including on your iOS or Android device. And you can also, and this is my favorite part, you can create and save playlists of the courses you want to watch. And that way you can customize your learning path or share with your friends, colleagues, and team members. So, for those of you considering it, lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. So, whether you're looking to become an industry expert or you're passionate about a hobby, say, I don't know, podcasting, or just want to learn something new, I want you to do yourself a favor and visit lynda.com slash and sign up for your free 10-day trial. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash W-W-I-I. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 129, Lend-Lease. Wars cost money, a lot of money. Even if you win and you saddle the loser with reparations, one, they might not be able to pay, certainly not the full amount you spent, and two, you can't even begin to get back any of your money until you win. The Americans had learned this right enough after the First Great War. Only Canada and Finland had not reneged on their loans to America. But it was the first country, Canada, that would allow the U.S. President Roosevelt to channel help to Britain to fight Nazi Germany in the early phase of World War II. That is, until the American people, and more importantly, Congress, could be convinced to take down the wall of isolationist policies, whose intent was to keep the U.S. out of any future European conflict. After the Great War, America was content, arrogantly and blindly so, to only dabble in European issues when it so chose. Most of the time, choosing not to. Instead, the government of the U.S. decided it would be best to shine as an example to the rest of the world to follow. So, when issues like the League of Nations arose, the Americans watched. When disarmament flourished, the U.S. did its own thing. When there was talk of outline war, a strange concept the more one thinks about it, the U.S. paralleled the movement with its own kellogg Bryant Peace Pack. In other words, the U.S. did its own thing, wished the rest of the world the best, well, second best, and went about its business of business. For just over a decade after the great, read horrifying, world war, no international crisis came along to shake America from its happy complacency, its Fortress America attitude. If anything, the Great Depression of 1929 only reinforced that attitude. But power politics, a.k.a. the Great Game, as it has been cynically called, had not been completely defeated by peace. No, it was merely resting. And humans hadn't changed all that much since 1914. In 1931, Japan invaded Manchuria. It had its reasons, but America was disappointed in the Asian power for allowing force to be used to answer questions of material need. But there are other types of need as well. Personal ambition, megalomania, and a lust for military greatness, viewed by the individual at the top most times as saving his country, or countrymen, from the other jealously cruel nations. For example, just two years after Manchuria was invaded, the Weimar Republic of Germany, sincerely trying to deal with the country's problems, Collapsed, which allowed the radicals to rise in its place. The winner of these extremists was, of course, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party. But for a while, a short while, Germany seemed internally content. What's more, even prospering under the slightly comical figure of the Austrian, with his love of military trappings. Of course, that didn't last too long, as Nazi Germany pulled out of the League of Nations. In 1934, and then began to openly rearm in March of 1935. Still, America was not directly affected, so went on dealing with its own economic troubles. In that same year, Mussolini began rebuilding the Roman Empire by invading Ethiopia. The U.S. reacted by making sure it would not get involved like the last war by passing the first in a series of neutrality acts. The act stipulated that once the U.S. president announced a state of war existed between two other countries, U.S. citizens were no longer allowed to sell or transport arms to either country. Also, that American citizens would be warned that if they chose to sail on any ships belonging to either belligerent, they were doing so at their own risk. The neutrality law only lasted for six months, but was easily passed again. And with this second go-around, an additional law was added, stating that no loans could be made to either belligerent. This was, in actuality, an attempt on the part of the U.S. government to get the European countries to pay back their World War One loans. As mentioned, Finland was the only European country to do so. But now that Franklin D. Roosevelt was in the White House, and though he rarely, directly communicated his true beliefs or goals to anyone, even his closest advisors, it's considered certain that he watched Nazi Germany with alarm. By 1937, as the Neutrality Act was once again up for renewal, with the Spanish Civil War raging, with Italy and Germany on one side, and the USSR backing the Nationalist government, Roosevelt wanted options, options he currently didn't have due to the standing laws. So, a compromise was reached. But this was only done so as it would benefit America financially, without risking going to war on anyone's side. The act pretty much went unchanged, except for a clause that allowed the President, with a limited amount of leniency, to assist one belligerent, or both, by selling them arms, but only on a cash-and-carry basis. That is, the sale could be made good for the American economy, but the goods had to be picked up and carried by the purchaser. All the rewards at no risk. How could Congress not pass it? But even this victory was short-lived as power politics came back full force. In July of 1937, Japan invaded China proper. But as there was no declaration of war from the Japanese, Roosevelt didn't feel the need to implement the Neutrality Act's even with its modification. But this gesture really didn't help the Chinese, who did not have the money or the credit needed to arm themselves with American goods to a degree to fend off the Japanese. On a side note, Chiang Kai-shek, and this would only get worse as the years went by, didn't trust most of his generals, or the warlords supposedly on his side, with those weapons in the first place. It was feared that they would settle local scores, as opposed to pushing out the Japanese. The other negative consequence for the U.S., and more directly, China, was that, as the U.S. President did not engage the Neutrality Acts, America still traded with Japan, the aggressor nation. Back in Europe, the darkness continued, as Germany certainly not one that needed to buy American war goods because they had been openly rearming since 1935, annexed Austria in March of 1938, then brought on the Czech crisis before gobbling up the rest of the country in 1939. From Roosevelt's point of view, it didn't seem long before Europe would need the material and therefore the financial help of the United States if they wanted to defeat Nazi Germany. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Clearly, something needed to be done to help the Allies in the coming war. And per his modus operandi, the American president went about this in an unorthodox way. Instead of selecting someone from the Department of War or the Navy, Roosevelt chose Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau, Jr. to organize Allied purchasing of U.S. goods. Had he chosen someone from one of those other two departments, they would have made sure, probably rightly so, that America had what it needed first, before helping anyone else. But Roosevelt wanted aid getting to the Allies straight away. In essence, Morgenthau might not have known much about international finance or things military, but he was a top administrator, and that's what the position called for. So, when France sent over Jean Monnet to the U.S. in October of 1938 to discuss purchasing American aircraft, the first thing Morgenthau brought up was the lack of French credit and cash and that they had not repaid their debts from the previous war. Monet counted with, no, but Canada had, and so we can use their credit, and we'll pay you back. The Treasury Secretary was not wild about this less-than-lawful way of arming the Allies, even though his boss wanted it to happen. It was decided that if France put up $10 in cash right now as a means of good faith, then they could probably get the wheels turning. But France didn't have it right away. Roosevelt and the Allies had found their first main problem, given current U.S. laws. As there was no cash, there would be no carry. But Roosevelt knew something had to give, and it was time to start nudging the U.S. citizenry to the right path. During his State of the Union speech on January 4, 1939, the President shared his vexation with the current neutrality laws. Surely there had to be some way, short of war, of helping their partner nations during this crisis. This was the beginnings of one half of the solution. The other half was on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Great Britain was already aware, at the time of Roosevelt's speech, of its need to carefully watch its cash reserves as well as its holdings of U.S. dollars. It said as much to Washington in April of 1939, but also that London would be looking to gather unto itself all British-owned foreign securities and U.S. dollars and gold. Now that Roosevelt had sent up his balloon to test the American public, it was time to really get an effective communication going with Britain. That July of thirty-nine, Lord Riverdale was sent over to begin talking about British purchases. Riverdale was hearkened by what came from the President. Yes, the British representative should be able to talk directly to the heads of executive departments. Yes, America, in the form of the President, wanted to share their increasing production of war material with Britain. But no, this could not be announced at the moment. Since his State of the Union speech, the American people had made it clear that, although they hoped the Allies all the best, they themselves were not ready to directly help or give up their arms thus weakening America's defense to sell to Europe. But Riverdale was able to take home an unofficial promise that, if the U.S. was still not in the war that seemed to be coming in the next two years, and if British credit remained strong, then Washington would certainly do what it could. It was better than nothing. Of course, that meant Britain still had to be standing at the end of those two years. But just as wars and battles are planned out, so too is the purchasing of military hardware. Yet the British system was such that each department within the government had its own statistics done. There was no overall department cataloging this, so comprehensive financial information could be given to the Prime Minister Chamberlain. Churchill went off about this when he was made First Lord of the Admiralty in September of thirty-nine. So, as Britain geared up to buy U.S. goods to take on Hitler, alongside France, it did not have a clear picture of what it had in terms of gold, U.S. dollars, and foreign securities. No information means no worthy plan. This led both countries, the U.S. and Britain, to realize roughly at the same time, that the only way they were going to be given the power to change the laws that would give them access to their citizens' property or overhaul their governments was only after war broke out, which gave the initiative to Hitler and another head start. But still, he tried. In June of 1939, Roosevelt moved to have the Neutrality Acts altered. It failed miserably. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. Undaunted, it was high time the British rolled up their sleeves and found out exactly what they had, what they could get from their nationals, and what they could sell. As this was done at the behest of the American government, the work led to rumors since then and after the war that the U.S. was taking advantage of Britain's needs and gearing up to fight Hitler. That is, Britain was stuck in between having to fight Germany or surrender and having to pay for American goods with U.S. dollars, which meant selling its gold, probably to the Americans, to raise dollars, to then buy U.S. goods. But it's closer to the truth to say that, although Britain handed over a lot of gold before the Lend-Lease became law, few British properties in the United States were sold. Nor were any Latin American investments sold to raise funds. Roosevelt explained again and again to the British that until something could be worked out to extend Britain credit, this was how it had to be done. At least the gold coming into America assuaged some of the critics that Roosevelt was trying to drag the U.S. into the war. Gold has a way of doing things like that. And the plan worked. By the time Congress was ready to vote on the Lenlease Act, Secretary Morgenthau was able to show records of how Britain had used up its dollar reserves, and then some. Between the end of the war and now, there have been many who claimed that FDR lied to the American public, that he wanted war, or that he wanted to use the war to stimulate the American economy, to use British money to pull the U.S. out of the Depression, while getting his own country ready for war, and everything in between. His apologists say that his policies, as they changed and eventually morphed into the Lend-Lease Act, really was his sincere attempt to keep the U.S. out of the conflict. It certainly seems true that FDR stayed focused on domestic politics and handled things outside his borders with no apparent overall grand strategy. If so, he wasn't the first, nor would he be the last. Managing foreign policy for a major power... Is like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube in the dark while you're drunk. The truth is, we will probably never know exactly what FDR was going for. He was too clever to state things bluntly. After all, the whisper of a president is louder than the scream from anyone else. He did not allow things to be written down, and rarely gave anyone the full picture of what he was thinking. So for all those who are stating facts... They are really just guessing and trying to sell something. Eventually, the war that everyone was expecting came in September of 1939, but then it didn't. As in, Poland was attacked, but then came the famous Sitzkrieg, or Phony War, instead of the German forces being launched against the West. And though the Allies were given a reprieve, there wasn't much FDR could do to help, given the Neutrality Act's. But the President was gearing up for a renewal of the Acts in late 1939. He proposed in September that belligerents be allowed to buy U.S. war goods on a cash-and-carry basis. The basis of this already was law, but he wanted it expanded. As in, the President wouldn't have to check with Congress to make sales. The proposed bill did not mention Great Britain, but it didn't have to. This was certainly not being aimed at Italy or Germany the isolationist congressmen started their counterattack straight away. Did the President really expect Congress to believe that the U.S. would sell the British war goods and then, when it ran out of money, would simply stop giving over these life-sustaining goods? Or that this would not bring the U.S. in, eventually, on the Allies' side? Senator Tom Connolly of Texas was chosen to refute this attack for the White House. The problem was... He had very few facts to work from. How much money, i.e. cash or gold, did Britain and France have? The U.S. didn't know, mostly because the parent countries didn't know themselves. So instead, Connolly simply sidestepped the question and gave references that Roosevelt's plan was the only true way to keep America out of the war. But soon, information started flowing into the U.S. about Britain's financial state. In October of 1939, at the moment, it was estimated that Britain had $4,522,000,000 in gold reserves. As for foreign investments, along with dollar reserves, that amounted to $5.5 billion. The truth was not so bright. In reality, Britain had, combining gold reserves and dollar resources, about two point nine billions worth. Sounds like a lot but not nearly enough to purchase adequate arms or to feed the home island for the foreseeable future. Still, these real numbers were not known at the moment, but even had the higher estimates been true, it wasn't enough, and many in Britain and those on FDR's side in the United States despaired. This was clearly not enough to purchase goods to fight Hitlerism. Meanwhile, in London, the man who officially represented FDR... And the U.S., the gloomy forecaster, was Ambassador Joseph P. Kennedy. He told the president of the situation in Europe like he saw it. The problem was, no one was liking what he was saying. Namely, that Germany was stronger than Britain and France, and that the U.S. had better get used to a Europe run by dictators. One can't help but wonder where were the following sentences. As in, here's the problem, sir, and here are some ideas on how to fix it. But Kennedy didn't provide that kind of information. To his credit, the ambassador did end one of his reports with a sentiment that had to be close to the secretive president's heart. Quote, America, alone in a jealous and hostile world, would find that the effort and cost, of maintaining splendid isolation would be such that as to bring about the destruction of all those values which the isolation policy has been designed to preserve, Exactly, FDR may have rejoined, if only the majority of his citizenry felt the same way. The debates over the Neutrality Acts continued. Many long speeches were offered up that spoke of American ideals versus American practicality? Should America only focus on itself, or rather, continue to be that shining beacon on a hill, pointing the way to freedom and other such platitudes? When it came time to vote on renewing or altering the Neutrality Acts, the real question was, was supporting the Allies good for America, for her economy, for the powers that be? And the answer was, yes. So the acts were modified. The U.S. could now sell to belligerents, but the sale had to take place in the United States, but be carried away on foreign ships. Also, Americans were no longer allowed to travel in war zones, something they hopefully weren't doing anyway, and that short-term credits could now be offered to the belligerents. This last part was the biggest step taken to something that would one day make FDR and the British happy. But they weren't there yet. With the legal wrangling over, for now, it was time to focus on the most important obstacle in helping the Allies, American public opinion. Well, that and American ignorance of international finance. Stories were put out by those who wanted to maintain America's isolation that Great Britain, even though it was now officially at war with Germany, was still putting out luxury goods, like high-quality woolens and scotch whiskey. Typical, said the average American. But what they didn't know was that items such as these brought in highly valued American dollars to buy American goods. And where ignorance is planted, it rarely dies. Polls from that time show that many Americans thought the Allies would lose eventually, but still did not want to get involved. This latter category did not make it over 30% for the next two years. Equally low was the popularity of loaning Britain money, and why would they, if most believed they were going to lose in the first place? But jumping back to the ignorance of international, or hell, national finance issues, FDR was equally lacking in this department. Just because one has money does not necessarily mean they know how they got it. Throughout the end of 1939, and into the first half of 1940, the President, like so many of his countrymen, posed the question, and this is why FDR did not work as fast as they could have in helping Britain obtain American credit. Why did the British need credit? Wasn't the British Empire rich? Wasn't that the point of an empire? Well, yes, but not in American currency, and certainly not in enough gold to fund a war. Certainly a long-term war, as this was shaping up to be. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, just want to say hi to some new members, and the next episode will be out uh, very soon. It certainly won't take two weeks. I'd like to say hello to Marcus M. from Pismo Beach, California, Uh, Ken J. from Ontario, Canada, um, Felician T. from Falls Church, Virginia, local, yay, thank you, and Christopher Q. from Maylands, Australia, and Michael M. from Alberta, Canada. So thank you very much for the latest members, and I hope you're, um, well, it was 50-some episodes, but eventually you'll be enjoying the episodes that I'm doing currently. Uh, I'd like to thank Keith D. from Calhoun, Colorado, from ordering a church mug and I uh, just want to say hi and thank you to Daniel R. who wrote in, I'm glad you liked it. The- episodes, the membership episodes, the Caesar episodes, the Alexander episodes, so I'm glad you like them all. And to Ivan M., and I've actually gotten this question uh, several times uh, throughout the years, Uh, the music, the intro music and the exit music that I use are actually, and I hope this doesn't disappoint anybody too much, uh, they're just some Apple loops that I found um, in GarageBand, so when I first started the podcast, I just went through a whole bunch of them, wrote them all down, and just uh, whittled them down one by one until I came up with those. So I'm glad you like them, Ivan. But unfortunately, um, I can't say that I wrote them or know who wrote them. They're just some random loops um, that that came with GarageBand. So I will see you soon with the next episode. We're going to wrap up. Um, the Lindley's thing pretty quickly because I'm excited. I want to get onto Russia. I'm trying, still trying to decide when to do the Stalin and FDR bio. But anyway, um, um, FDR obviously can wait. But um, that's my family upstairs making noise. Sorry. But so I'm just trying to figure out Russia the Stalin bio. bio but I'll figure it all out. And then once we get into that, um, we'll just enjoy the the quagmire that is the war in the East. Take care, everyone.